Hi everyone, Sam here, producer and one part of the presenting team for the Pint of Science podcast with the fourth and final part of our mini-series in collaboration with Aston University. In this episode, we're meeting Professor of Cognitive Neuroimaging Gina Rippon from the School of Life and Health Sciences at Aston University. Among her work, Gina specialises in brain development and the idea of the gendered brain. Essentially, that it's predominantly society, rather than our biology, which determines how and why men and women behave differently. She spent much of her career looking at these differences through a scientific brain and examining how everything from the toys we play with to the problems we solve in our lives lead our brains to slot us into the roles expected of us. In addition, Jeannie uses the latest imaging techniques to look at the development of our ability to learn and interact with the world around us. It's all fascinating stuff, and if you're listening to this and inspired to learn about neuroimaging or STEM courses in general, head to aston.ac.uk for more information. But right now, why not pour a drink of your choice and get ready for a pint of science with Professor Gina Rippon. Your research deals in the gendered brain, and... I have to ask, what does that actually mean? Because it could mean a whole lot of things, couldn't it? Yes, that, that's a very good starting question. It brings us right back to this whole issue of what's the difference between sex and gender? Because nowadays, sex should be used to refer to the kind of biological aspects of, you know, something being biologically determined in terms of sex chromosomes, for example, and gender should be saved, if you like, for understanding society's input into our identity, our activities, the roles we're expected to play, etc. So they used to be very separate. In a way, it's it's like the distinction between nature and nurture, with with sex being nature and, and some kind of genetic template unfolding and gender being nurture where everything is determined by society and culture expectations etc i called the book the gendered brain because it is really saying that 21st century neuroscience is saying that this is a, a, an artificial distinction that nature and nurture are so entangled that what society expects of us and the experiences exposes us to is as much a, an influence on the biological components of the brain as any kind of genotype. Okay, so when you talk about a, a gendered brain, this is the the part of our brain or the way our brain is shaped by society. Is that right? Into yes. what you call uh, male and female roles? Or is that oversimplification? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd hesitate about the male and female roles. We might come back to that. I think the well, idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the idea is that there is. It, it, every every brain has some kind of biological template. I mean, I believe very strongly that every brain is different from every other brain. And a lot of that is down to the biological template, which determines the kind of brain that we have. But part of that template is that the brain will interact with what it finds in the outside world. So if the outside world is gendered and exposes different individuals to different experiences, depending on whether they're male or female, um, or even their own expectations of, of their own possible achievements or their personalities, etc. Both of those will actually determine the kind of brain we that drives us through the world throughout our lives. Okay, so to what extent uh, is who we are and our, our personalities and the way we interact with the world, to what extent is that something that is is just ingrained in our brain pattern or is something that we've either actively learnt or been 
passively taught by society over the course of our lifetimes? Classic academic answer, neither. (laughs) Really, I mean, (laughs) who we are. Uh, It it may well be that we're born with uh, particular propensities to respond to what we find in society. Some people may be less susceptible to what society has to offer. Some people may be much more susceptible and much more um, guided by the gendered, if you like, principles that they might find in society. Um, So I I, I think the way in which our, our brain develops is part of our biology. But one of the things that we now know in the 21st century is that our brain is wired to make us social, um, not just to give us the amazing skills that we have, which we assume are the basis of our success, the human race's success, like language and creativity and art, science, philosophy, etc. But we are also very social beings. So we need to find our niche in society. We need to identify our in-groups, our out-groups. We need to work out what the rules of social engagement are. And that will determine our identity, our feeling about, you know, I know I'm a female, I know I'm a male, etc. And this is what a, you know, is expected of a female or a male in the society in which I'm functioning. Uh, I go to school and there's clearly different expectations depending on whether I'm a, a girl or a boy. Um, and all of that will form part of our identity. So a lot of people say, you know, where in the brain is our identity and longing to find, you know, a nice little part of the brain which will become active when you're asked to think about yourself, for example, or compare yourself with somebody else. But it's very much a function of of what um, is input into that brain as well. Well, I mean, they do change so quickly, don't they? I mean, <laughs> well, that's right. Yes, that is true. Actually, yes. yes, because I mean, as I said to somebody, once you bear in mind how plastic the human brain is, we brain images are only ever getting a snapshot of somebody's brain on the day they come into our lab, and you know, you don't mm. know what's what's gone on before in their lives specifically i mean you may be able to have a checklist of general questions you should ask or you don't know how it's going to change after that um so effectively you're you're looking at something which is changing all the time and and therefore it makes it you know you can't pin it down you can't say this is how the brain works because tomorrow it'll be working differently yes oh there's the philosophical argument about a man can never step in the same river twice but there's also another I don't know if it reflects my reading habits, but there's a lovely Lewis Carroll uh, talking about Alice who says, I can't go back to yesterday because I was a different person then. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's true of the brain. You might walk out of the lab and do something completely different. And if you came back the next day, your brain would reflect that. I guess some of those changes can be huge, can't they? So for example, the invention of the smartphone has possibly completely rewired the brains of those who... Yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, I I always get a bit anxious about the term rewiring because it seems to have been kind of adopted by, excuse me, it sounds rude, but self-help gurus, you know, how to rewire your brain to be (laughs) a better X, Y or Z. That's the new new self-help thing. But yes, I mean, you know, people talking (laughs) about we used to remember telephone numbers and we don't anymore. We've kind of outsourced our, our memory. And I think because our brains are plastic, then... Not in the kind of shroud waving, you know, we're raising a generation of um, children with the attention span of a goldfish type story. But I think what our brains need to do to process information has changed dramatically in the last 30, 40 years. So who knows? Yes, our brains 
we are changing all the time. Uh, and probably if we have a kind of centenary of, of brain imaging in the 2090s, it would be interesting to, we'll be using different techniques then, of course, but it would be really interesting to do the same sort of experiments they did in the 1990s to see what brains look like. On that, actually, I will ask you, how good is our understanding of the brain getting now? Because <laughs> it's kind of the last one of the last great mysteries of a human body, isn't it? Are we, are we any closer to cracking just how we tick up in our heads? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's that wonderful phrase, you know, if we were, if our brains were so simple that we could understand them, we'd be too simple to understand our brains. So we're in the foothills. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, every day there's a different sort of way of understanding the brain. I mean, we understand a huge amount more, but actually in understanding a huge amount more makes us realise how huger amount more there is to understand yes. just so complicated and you know you think you've got a handle on a tiny little bit of the brain uh, in particular imaging techniques I use were you know supposedly a huge step forward in understanding how the brain works and we don't I mean you need to tie in not just neuroimaging but neurochemistry metabolism genetics and if you can start to model that uh, the use of machine learning techniques, pattern recognition, all of those helps. But I think what it really tells us is that this is a hugely complicated organ that we'll probably never fully understand. Mm. I've got two questions which which come off that, and I'm trying to work out which to ask first. To what extent are we trapped then in what society has taught us growing up? Is there a way of expanding out of that? How do you free yourself from that trap, or or, or can you? All right, great question. Um, <laughs> we're trapped in that our brains are uh, very flexible, but they're very determined, if you like, to help us out. So our brains will be checking out all the time what's going on in the outside world and constantly sending messages back, predictions, if you like, about what's going to happen next or how we should behave. If that doesn't work out well, then it flags up a prediction, prediction error and says, okay, next time this arrives, we might need to do something differently. So to some extent, you could say we're, we're driven by uh, the, in quotes, anxiety of our brain to get things right. But our brains are also very flexible. So the experiences that brains are exposed to, as well as the attitudes, not, not just sort of day-to-day -day experiences, but the, but the kind of expectations that we encounter can change our brain. And actually just being aware of that can make a big difference. So if you think, you know, I'm a girl, girls don't do science, I won't do science. If somebody can say to you, you need to reflect on why you think that way, what is it that, that makes you think science isn't for you? You could then say, oh, well, actually, it's because I haven't had the right kind of experiences. So I can easily go and get those experiences. Or I might feel uncomfortable in science's culture because people have this particular attitude, but with inclusivity and diversity initiatives, people are trying to address that. So our, bra our brains are flexible in a, in a good way as well as a bad way. It's, it sounds like a really stupid question, but on a day-to-day -day basis, how much is the gendered brain affected by or affecting our society and, and the world around okay. us? No, no, it, it, it's, it's not. <laughs> if you like, it's one of the fundamental questions because the whole issue is about self-fulfilling prophecies. So that if, uh, you know, from the moment of birth and take gender reveal parties into account, even before then, society imposes very strict 
rules, if you like, or expectations on on boys and girls, um, depending on whether they're a boy or a girl. And, you know, our amazingly flexible, eager to learn brains will will pick that up. And therefore, you know, girls who are not encouraged to play with construction toys or boys who are or girls who are taught that, you know, girls are are neat and tidy and sit quietly. All of that will will actually shape individuals' behaviour, which then, of course, feeds into this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think in the 21st century, the the, the sort of gender bombardment that children uh, and adults are exposed to is much more powerful because of of social media, advertising, clothes, books, films, etc. And our brains will be responding to that. Again, it sounds like a stupid question. I feel a bit stupid for asking it. But is that holding people back yeah, necessarily absolutely. and and again yeah i mean and, and again that that is one of the fundamental reasons that i wrote the book because it absolutely is holding people back if there is a negative expectation in society and there's a social psychology concept which sometimes has been a bit overhyped but i think is quite powerful in terms of explaining what's going on and that's called a stereotype threat So that if it's called to your attention that you're a member of a particular group who tends to do poorly on a particular task, the task that it happens that you're doing at the moment, behaviourally, you will make more mistakes and underperform. And that's also represented at the brain level, which I think is really important because it demonstrates that the brain isn't just a kind of vacuum problem solving system. It also takes into account what is expected you know if you're told you're a a member of a um, community who tends to do worse on these kind of math tasks you will make more mistakes so those are the kind of things which will hold people back because if there is an expectation that you will fail not do well that's exactly the kind of arena that your brain will be trying to steer you away from because your brain is making sure that your life experiences are positive, um, that your self-esteem is maintained, that you perform as is expected of your in-group, etc. So it, very powerful driver against success in the face of, of gender stereotyping. What springs to mind is the the kind of the early women pioneers in STEM and in, in science and in maths. So Marie Curie, the code breakers at Bletchley Park. How did people specifically women, in that time break free from kind of the chains of <laughs> of the stereotype then in, in that sense? And, you know, women have a certain role to do, but here are these women who are really breaking free from that and, and not being afraid. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with, with immense difficulty, I think, in terms of how they broke free. Yes. I mean, I think <laughs> it was Rosalind Franklin's 100th, potentially 100th birthday this weekend. And, and there's been very interesting insights into the attitudes of her male colleagues towards her abilities, which generally, you know, kind of wish that she'd take a bit more interest in how she dressed, as opposed to her amazing techniques with crystallography, etc. And we know what happened to Rosalind Franklin mm-hmm. in, in terms of, of, of how her work was not ignored, in fact, um, uh, hijacked, if you like. Uh, so yes, uh, yes. but <laughs> you know, but it, but again, there's a huge amount of variability. So you know, on average, people toe the line. People do what's expected of them. But at either end of of, of any kind of uh, distribution, there will be people who will ignore that and say, "My wish to succeed in this particular sphere 
is so powerful, it will overcome you know, the constant pounding on my self-esteem or self-identity that it is receiving, you know, which makes people like that even more outstanding in terms of, of what they've had to uh, ignore, uh, overcome in order to, to succeed. Yes, I guess you've you've not just got to ignore outside pressures, you're kind of ignoring your own brain in a sense absolutely yes that, but i guess then those that, outliers yes yeah you, you've got to you, you've got to ignore that voice in your head which says do you know i don't think you really belong here or even if you succeed people ignore you or they say oh you were just part of a hard-working team or or you know all, all the classic kind of put downs which which one can come across yes absolutely but i guess on, on the flip side if you are one of those outliers who then kind of breaks breaks the chain if you like you therefore make it easier societally for the next generation i suppose to that's, to come in and build on that because it's slightly less odd that's absolutely right because if you know a, a powerful driver is that that you see people like you uh, in the outside world role models etc that helps you feel that there is an in group to which you can associate with so yes i mean role models really really important Mm. And how did you get involved in this field of study yourself? What's your what's your story and your background? <laughs> in a way, it was a kind of split personality type story in that I was a very hardline uh, psychophysiologist, a profound believer in, you know, biology determines everything. And uh, you know, that was the research I was doing. And that, that, that was what I was teaching. But then I got involved in like it's called the sort of second wave of feminism in the 1990s, which was actually a biological politics movement, which said, you know, women's biology is actually being misused in terms of the whole idea of there being a very strict dichotomy in terms of sex roles in society. And women have been identified as having this particularly vulnerable biology and have a proper look at biology research and see if it's really telling the story that you and everybody else like you, <laughs> are teaching your undergraduates. So it made me take a, a, a much more critical view on the, the whole idea, the sort of brain and behaviour type links that had been taken as given. And it made me realise that the story isn't as clear cut. You know, even going back 200 years, there were these very powerful statements about the difference between male and female brains and how that determined what society could expect of males and females, uh, even before, of course, we could actually look at the brain anyway, but that didn't hold scientists of the time back <laughs> in any way. <laughs> yeah, so it, it made me start to challenge the givens in, in psychology and, and biological psychology at the time. Textbooks were full of, you know, we've got right brains and left brains and the difference between male brains and female brains and, and uh, quoting, uh, you know, quite uh, significant research to prove this. So to then go back and say, well, how good are these findings? You know, how many people were these tested on? Has it been replicated? Uh, how, how big are these differences that we're looking at? Because, you know, the use of the term different makes you feel that there's a nice distinct two groups if you like this is you know males are like this or male brains are like this females are like this female brains are like that um, yes, a nice yeah. comfortable you know dichotomy and when you go into the the research you think actually that's that's not at all what people are finding and so it, it was really ha that's how I got to challenging the whole idea that we had this kind of 
biological script playing out. You, know, you were given a particular brain, if you like, at conception, and you were born and, and that brain developed along uh, predetermined unchangeable lines. There were books called The Female Brain and The Male Brain, and there were books called Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, etc. So it was a yes, nice, yeah. tidy story, which actually fitted in with people's experience of their lives. Because of course, when you get a self-fulfilling prophecy process going on, what you see uh, is what you expect to see. And so somebody coming along and saying, yes, of course, yeah, you know, things aren't actually that clear cut. Uh, men are more similar to women then they are different. People find that quite challenging and still do. So is that now the kind of accepted scientific theory now that the brains are very similar and it's societally generated? Or is there is there still a kind of an element of the scientific community that thinks that male and female brains are very different? I wouldn't say that it's societally generated because that gets us dangerously back onto the is it nature or nurture but yes it does doesn't it (laughs) (laughs) very firmly of the belief that it's both and that we we ignore either at our peril and i think perhaps that's a better way of putting it i would love you know to say yes the scientific community is of an accord (laughs) but i'm afraid that's not the case there are very firmly entrenched views that there are very fixed differences, biological differences between male brains and female brains. I mean, first of all, the idea that there is such a thing as the female brain or the male brain is is a matter of quite intense contention within scientific circles. And there are people who are saying we, you know, you people like me who are saying actually you need to look quite carefully at how profound these differences are and and they're not and they're not consistent. And the link between brain structure and and behaviour is not sufficiently firmly established that we can explain one in terms of the other. They will just say, well, that's you putting political correctness above scientific certainty. And those are the terms of the debate very often within the scientific community. People say, well, you know, what's changed? Why, Why have you suddenly, I mean, not suddenly, (laughs) <laughs> working on it for a long time uh, you know why do you think you can write this book now and you think well because there are new ways of understanding the brain which we didn't have before and those new ways mm. are telling us a lot more about the reality or in fact the myth of the male female brain uh, than, than was ever available to the debate before referring to the idea that people like me a member of a group of feminazis, uh, for example, is the term that's been used, um, <laughs> deny the existence of sex differences, which is absolutely not the case. I'm not a sex difference denier. Of course, there are sex differences in the brain. What we need to know is, is how significant those are, how much they interact with what else is going on in the world in which that brain is functioning, because so much uh, is dependent on the statements of that sort of science. So for a very Mm. long time, you know, for example, it was felt that women's brains weren't suitable for the rigours of higher education. This this would damage their brains and their reproductive systems, you know, so the end of human civilization if you let women do degrees, for example. Very firm statements, you know, that there are these differences. And they're couched not in quite those kind of extreme terms today, but there are observations, for example, that there are brain-based Uh, diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, um, where there are quite strong 
sex differences in, in incidence, mental illness disorders such as depression, eating disorders, for example, much higher incidence in females. And those are quoted as proof, in inverted commas, that there is a biological basis for these disorders and it is linked very profoundly to whether you're male or female. And I would not in any way deny that there is a biological basis. But I think focusing just on whether the individual is male or female and that there is some kind of biological fault that could be put right is not going to get us any nearer the solution because you need to look at why that biological process has been derailed in the way it has. And that means you need to look at what's going on in the outside world. Do you think that these studies, and again, I apologise if I'm asking you a question badly or, or a bad question, <laughs> are these studies which suggest that there are significant gender differences in, in the brain, is that a result of poor science, societal expectations weighing down on the science, or is it drawing incorrect conclusions from a whole scientific body, which doesn't necessarily suggest that when you look at the individual findings and the individual studies? Uh, all of the above. <laughs> Sorry, probably. Um, I mean, <laughs> bearing in mind that this whole idea, for example, about differences between male and female brains, came at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, when the emergence of, of brain science tied in with looking at the status quo, because you could look at dead brains or damaged brains, but you really didn't have an idea what an intact living brain did. You yes, therefore went yeah. back for some status quo. You said, let's have a look at society. Well, women are clearly inferior, because they were, because that's how society had been constructed. Uh, so the early brain scientists mm. were very much looking for what is it that makes women inferior to men. So the methodology was developed precisely to prove that. Um, the metrics that were devised in terms of feeling bumps on the skull or, or, or weighing the you know how much bird shot you could put inside a skull or measuring different angles on the earlobe to the chin, etc. You know, weird weird kind of metrics. If if they didn't come up. Mm. with the answer that men were superior to women, there was something wrong with the metric. And yes. I'm not saying that the same <laughs> the same is true today, but but that was, you know, it's what I call the hunt the difference agenda with a loaded uh, hunt the difference it intersected with race. So it had to be white, educated, upper class males had to be the top of any scale that was generated. And if the metric didn't come up with that, then the, the metric was discarded. So, so that was really where the idea came from. And it kind of became very entrenched in that there are differences. You've got a slightly a shift in the narrative in that instead of inferiority, we got what's called the kind of complementarity agenda, where women had these wonderful, soft, nurturing skills, which made them good at being wives and mothers. And those were brain determined, as opposed to the you know manly uh, leadership genius type skills which their brains gave them. So slightly politer narrative, but still focused very much on the difference. And even when we got brain imaging techniques in the 1990s, that kind of hunt the difference still informed the research agenda. So people were proving the 
uh, amazing insights that were being provided by these new imaging techniques by by saying, look, you know, men and women use language differently. And here's a picture of their brain using language differently. So it wasn't any kind of fraud. It was just that's the way people thought. That's what they looked at. And it wasn't until people started questioning how reliable these findings were, you know, what was the size of the sample they were looking at and what were the differences? Because that's the other thing. I mean, I, I have found when, you know, talking to members of the general public or audiences with a, a wider interest, when you say the differences between men's and women's behaviour, brain characteristics are absolutely tiny, much, much smaller than the variability within the groups. So we've got, you know, a biologically Mm. Uh, in inverted commas, homogeneous group, male or female, huge amount of variability. That would be much more interesting to look at. Where does that variability come from if they all supposedly have a fairly similar biology, as opposed to focusing on these very tiny differences, which are really only evident at, you know, at the average level? So very often scientists will talk about, you know, if you listen to them, they talk about on average men's brains, you know, have a, have a larger amygdala than women or something. So on average, that's the kind of get out clause. But it means at the individual level, knowing that somebody's male or female tells you nothing about what their brain is going to be like. Yes, absolutely. And I suppose that's been proven in the last few years, I guess, by the fact that women and uh, young girls are now outperforming boys of a similar age in a lot of academic subjects in mm. in schools. Yes, I, I guess. Mean, I, so, uh, <laughs> I think that actually demonstrates the, the power of expectations as well, because because if you turn it on your head and say, why is it that boys are in inverted commas again, apparently inferior at you know academic achievement, then you look at the expectations yes. <laughs> and the peer pressure, etc. That's something else to be looking at, or it shows the power of those expectations as well. Yes, I suppose so. I suppose in a, in a way, the expectations have have flipped in almost the space of a of a generation or two haven't they so very very quickly now you've got yes you know the the gender which was previously seen as inferior and not suitable for education is now performing better <laughs> because of those societal expectations that now you can do better now people are really worried <laughs> yes yeah yeah that's right but it's interesting because it then leads to an area of interest that i have about the underrepresentation of women in science by saying that the story always was that you know there were no female Nobel Prize winners apart from, you know, kindly people like Marie Curie, who did just happen to get two. But, you know, the idea that for some reason, women's brains weren't suitable for science. And now you say, well, actually, at one level, girls are outperforming boys in sort of fundamental science type training. So why is there still an underrepresentation of women in science? And that's when you look at the culture of science and what is rewarded and you know who is the, the lead author on the papers and who gets the most citations, etc. So it's a really nice case study of showing that these cognitive skills, brain-given cognitive skills, are not sufficient to ensure success. And therefore, cultures of whatever mm. kind, could be business, could be science, could be law, could be politics, need to understand, assuming they all want the maximum amount of success or productivity or whatever for their workforce, they need to look at the culture uh, and how they treat individuals within that culture. Which I suppose in, in part, again, comes down to partly people's personalities, but also the way they've been raised and, their, and the societal expectations on them, doesn't it? I suppose if, you know, looking at the CEO's example, I think um, 
what was the statistic that you gave in your TEDx talk? Was it there are more CEOs called Craig Steve. than our female CEOs? Is that Steve. right? Steve. Steve, I sorry, yes. I think, I think it's been through John and it's now Steve, I think. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and again, if if one of the things our brain is trying to do is work out, you know, how where we're going to fit in into the society in which we find ourselves, if you look at that kind of culture, you just think that this clearly isn't the kind of culture for me because there'd be more women in it if it was. And I think that's where you get the self-fulfilling prophecy where potentially successful individuals turn away from areas where they could be equally successful as the current incumbents, if not more so, because they think I wouldn't fit in. And of course, you then again, also, if you do breakthrough into a culture which isn't very welcoming, which doesn't reward you for how you behave or how you achieve, that can in itself change how your your brain works. So, you know, it's what I call the kind of mm. silencing of the self or the academic silencing where people just switch off, they withdraw. You know, clearly I'm not I'm not suited for this. And therefore they withdraw and and that, you know, will it could affect performance of a business. But even more worryingly, it, it could actually engender psychiatric illness, you know, which is very much on the increase. And so I kind of uh, alluded to uh, to this earlier, but what can we do to uh, enable ourselves, enable our children, enable our, our, our friends and family, colleagues to give them the best opportunity of breaking free from this and being the best brain they can be, <laughs> yeah, allowing yeah. their brain to be the best they can Something be. Something <laughs> you should go on a T-shirt. Yeah, so you have a motivational poster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, I mean, I think call it out. You know, sometimes people think, oh, this is just political correctness. But I be- get involved with an organisation called Let Toys Be Toys, which is really focusing on how gendered toys have become in the 21st century. And you could think, oh, well, you know, it's, it's just a bit of fun. And, and you know, what, what's wrong with the boys having the Lego and the, and the girls having doll's houses or princess outfits? And there's a lot wrong. <laughs> there is a lot wrong. Yeah. Let, let everybody have everything, I think, is a crucial thing. Not saying that, you know, you should force boys to play with Barbies and girls to play with Lego. But really calling it out and saying, actually, when you watch a video or something um, with your children, isn't it odd that the, the, the superhero is all, always a boy? Or isn't it great to see a girl who's a powerful role model? So it's being aware of all of those kind of differences, and particularly in the early years. And, and I think that's where it's really important, where nursery schools and primary schools, if you look at quite unconscious gender stereotyping in the classroom, that's actually, you know, very pernicious in terms of, you know, these are the times in our lives when our brains are the most plastic, most receptive to what's going on. And that's the time in children's lives when they're being given very strong messages about what's appropriate for girls and what's appropriate for boys. Where do you see things being in the next 5, 10, 15 years in regards to the gendered brain, or or at least where do you hope they are? Do you think society will take note and start to kind of ingrain more liberating expectations? <laughs> I, I think there's glimmerings of hope in the early years in education. Um, the Fawcett Society is currently running an investigation into the effects of gender stereotyping in the early years. And I think being more aware of that, and even things like the Advertising Standards 
authority refusing to run adverts which sustain gender stereotypes feel like you know really PC tweaks. But I think those kind of things can have mm. a, a really big difference. I think with respect to the effects of COVID, I'm afraid, it looks very strongly that they will have affected women's employment and the gender pay gap quite strongly, unfortunately. So in terms of what's going on in the mm. outside world, you know, there are counter forces against that. But I, th- I, I do feel there is a willingness for people to listen to the fact that differences between males and females are not, in inverted commas, God-given. So, so I, th- I think there is that kind of hope that people will be moving towards the idea. And, and, and what I always say when people talk about things like gender-neutral parenting or how do you overcome gender stereotypes, I think the only success will be when we have gender irrelevance when whether you're male or female is not even a question that people ask. They'll be much more interested in your particular skills, personalities, preferences, whatever, and will not assume that those are, are determined by whether you're male or female or anything in between, which which I think is, again, mm. an interesting narrative which is emerging about gender identity. And is it really the case that you're either male or female? And, of course, it isn't at the biological level, as well as beyond. And and I think acknowledging that and, and breaking this previously supposedly unbreakable link between biological sex and social gender, I think that would be a really, a really good way forward. And the fact, you know, science is starting to be able to demonstrate that and people are, are willing to listen is hopeful. Thank you so much, Gina. That was a fascinating look at how, in an attempt to make our lives easier, our brains might actually be putting us in a box. If you're inspired to learn more about cognitive neuroscience, the work that Aston does in this field, or STEM in general, head to aston.ac.uk for more information. And thank you so much for listening to this mini-series. If you haven't already, do go and check out the previous three episodes. They are full of fascinating facts and fascinating people.